Tomorrow is Labor Day. In addition to being a three-day weekend for many, if not all, it's important to be mindful, as Nicole shared with us some in the story, that Labor Day, the first Monday in September, is about much more than just a symbolic end to summer. It was created as an invitation to remember and celebrate the role of the labor movement in this country. In the uh, late 19th century, an increasing number of states officially recognized Labor Day as a holiday culminating in Congress declaring Labor Day a federal holiday in 1894. It can nevertheless be easy to forget for many of us just how much we owe to organized labor. As one bumper sticker says, support unions from the folks who brought you the weekend, child labor laws, overtime pay, minimum wage, injury protection, workers' compensation insurance, pension security, sick leave, more uh, safe, safer working conditions, and so much more. Historically, many people in agricultural societies, and, in, and especially the beginning of the Industrial Revolution, used to spend 12 or more hours per day working for six or seven days per week. But in the early 19th century and continuing for over 100 years, working hours in this country actually were on this steady decline of a trajectory of decreasing. They were cut in half by most accounts over the course of a century. That's pretty remarkable. The labor movement pushed back against the exploitation of workers. And here's another oft-forgotten twist. In the late 19th century, extrapolating from the successes of the labor movement that they had seen working hours um, decrease by half over the previous century, it was predicted that by many of the best economists that well before the 20th century ended, we were going to enter into a golden age of leisure. How's that working out for all of us, right? Are we in a, are we in a golden age of leisure here, you know, decades after the, the 20th century? It was thought that no one would have to work more than two hours a day. And that's what it would have meant if we continued on that same trajectory. So for those forced to earn a living through alienated labor, this isn't about if you love your job and you would do it for free anyway. This is about if you hate your job, if you feel very alienated from your labor. That working only two hours a day for a total of 10 hours a week, that would mean time to, produce, to pursue the American dream of life of liberty, of the pursuit of happiness, whatever you enjoy. Instead of returning home from work too exhausted to do anything but rest briefly before dragging yourself back out the door to work again the next day. Now, labor activists did help secure a five-day work week, and in some cases, we have these case studies where um, you know, union organizers secured a six-hour workday. But starting with the Great Depression in the 1930s, the trend of shortening work hours reversed and started going in the other direction. We got this increasing emphasis that we have to grow the economy through perpetually increasing consumer demand. So many of us find ourselves working increasingly long hours, but not actually having any free time to speak of to enjoy the fruit of our labor. So on this Labor Day weekend, I'd like to invite us to reflect on the state of work today. Then take us on a very quick tour through the history of work, and then use those two pieces, the state of work today and the history of how work has changed over time, to imagine how we might choose to work differently as a society in the future.
Let's begin with the state of work today. There's a whole lot to say about that, so I'm going to have to limit myself to two important examples, although there are many more we could consider. I want to talk some about extreme workers, and then I want to talk some about essential workers. Extreme jobs is a technical term sometimes used by scholars to describe people who work 70 or more hours a week because they love their job so much and or because they're so ridiculously well compensated for it. And that's merely the lower end of the extreme worker spectrum. Some extreme jobs average 120 hours a week regularly. That leaves less than seven hours per, per day for everything else. So sleeping, eating, any free time with family or friends, any entertainment. And studies show that by and large, extreme profession, professionals do not feel exploited. They actually feel exalted. They most report that they love the intellectual challenge. They love the thrill of achieving something big. Others are turned on by the oversized compensation packages, brilliant colleagues, and recognition and respect that comes with the territory of extreme work. Now, I suspect most of us are not extreme workers. If you have time to tune in to this Sunday service and are listening to me right now, you are probably not an extreme worker on the, the far end of the scale. And although some people are doing extreme work mostly for the money, I've brought up the phenomenon of extreme workers because it can serve as a useful case study for an important question. If you are fortunate enough to do a job that you love and find meaningful, is more of that work always better? Because I think that's a lot of what we're sold. If you have meaningful work, more of it is always better. I'm just not sure that's the case. Even if you loved your job, there are other priorities in life. To quote another slogan from the labor movement in the late 19th century, there was an organized campaign to get us the eight-hour workday, and it went like this. Eight hours for work, eight hours for rest, and eight hours for what you will. Combined with the weekend, that is how we got the 40-hour work week. And I think for a lot of us, or at least me growing up, I just thought it had always been that way. I just thought we always had the 40-hour work week. But that was really something that was achieved quite recently, historically speaking. So it's worth thinking about, you know, rest is important. Eight hours of rest every day. Free time is important. Eight hours or more of free time every day and the whole weekend for rest and freedom. But is that how it is for most of us today? Technological innovations have meant that fewer of us are able to actually just clock out after eight hours. Instead, emails, texts, social media, and more have resulted in work that is increasingly suffused throughout the day and wherever we are, meaning that it's often difficult to unplug even on vacation because your phone can find you, right? People can find you. So on one side of the spectrum, we have extreme workers logging long hours because they love it or are incredibly well compensated. And although the pandemic has underscored the ways in which essential workers on the other side of the spectrum are a key part of our economy, our society often does not compensate essential workers accordingly. That makes essential worker, it's kind of like a term of Orwellian doublespeak. You know, we're acknowledging with that term the importance of essential work at this surface level without being transparent about how poor essential workers, they're not compensated as if they were essential. And if we juxtapose extreme workers and essential workers, it's important to acknowledge that most people around the world do not love their job. 
So if you love your job, celebrate that, but know that most people don't. According to Gallup's most recent State of the Global Workplace report, just 15% of employees worldwide feel engaged at work, 15%. Two-thirds are not engaged, 18% are actively disengaged. It's like a real office space situation, if you remember that film from the 90s. The situation is slightly better here in the United States and Canada, where approximately 30% of people report being uh, engaged by their jobs. So that's double globally, globally 15%, US and Canada, 30% of people like and are engaged by their job. But that's still pretty dismal, 30% at best, you know, for vocational enjoyment. For many reasons, the current state of work is unjust, both in our country and around the world. And if we look backward, it quickly becomes evident how much our idea of what work means and how it's valued has changed over time. So we can be assured that how we work will change in the future because it's changed so much in the past. But the question is, in what direction will it change? Will it change toward more humane work for more people? Or will it um, continue toward work that primarily advantages only an elite few? If you'll take, come with me on a very quick tour through the history of work, we will find that this modern idea of finding meaning in one's work, and that being kind of the, the best thing, that was decidedly not how the ancient Greeks thought about it. In ancient Greece, the ideal was not to have a meaningful job that gave you your purpose in life. The ideal was to be a free citizen who didn't have to work, who could spend one's time engaged in lifelong learning and in engagement with uh, the democratic process and politics. When the Roman Empire came to power, the Greeks' major emphasis on community service was eclipsed by an increasing focus on it's kind of like it's good to be the king. It was just like, hey, if you're an elite, just enjoy it and embrace the luxury of being able to do whatever you like in the private sphere. In contrast, when we turn to the Middle Ages, the importance becomes placed on the Christian work ethic. That's where we get this idea that idleness is, you know, the devil's work or idleness is a vice. So whereas the ancient, ancient Greeks, idleness was great, you know, for Romans, it was great. Uh, and that, that really changed in the Middle Ages. And an even more decisive shift came with the Industrial Revolution and the rise of capitalism, where rather than merely using work to sustain one's existence and you know, make sure you had shelter and food, work became redefined as primarily the creation and accumulation of capital that you then leveraged. My point with this super quick tour through history is that the how and why of how we humans have engaged in work has changed dramatically over time and raises the question of how it may change in the future. So let's start by connecting back to the situation we explored earlier of extreme workers who work 70 to 120 hours a week, who often receive extremely high pay. In many ways, it makes sense for people to be well paid. If you work hard, if you're providing a service that society values, it makes sense to be well compensated. But we've lost touch as a society, many ethicists would invite us to consider, that the amount an elite few are allowed to earn needs to be balanced against the common good. For example, you hear a whole lot about the minimum wage, and we need to talk about the minimum wage. The minimum wage needs to be a living wage, you know, enough that you can um, have a life on. 
But to make that possible, do we need to talk about a maximum wage until everyone has a living wage? You don't hear as much about that. Do we need a wealth tax, which you're starting to hear folks talk about on the upper end of the spectrum until we ensure that everyone has the basic minimum to live a dignified life and then we can kind of take the, the cap off? The basic minimum is sometimes called a stable floor for all. You know, what is the stable floor that we've established as a society such that people cannot sink beneath that? Today, American CEOs take home 312 times what their lowest paid employees make. Are they, is every hour that a CEO works really 312 times more valuable? We're way out of balance as a society, and it hasn't always been this way. In the past 40 years, CEO pay has soared by an inconceivable 1,070%. So in 40 years, we've multiplied CEO pay by 1,070%. Productivity over that time, overall, for all workers, has increased by 70%, but the hourly wages of average workers has only increased 12%. So productivity is up 70% for everybody. CEO pay is up 1,000%. Most people's wages are only up 12%. The vast majority of us really are working harder than ever, but the vast preponderance of the compensation is only going to the top. This is where I, I titled a Labor Day sermon a few um, years ago, sharpening your pitchforks. You know, like sometimes it's time for that. And changes are coming, as we've also explored in previous sermons. It's not immigrants, really, that are the, coming for your jobs. The robots are. The robots are coming for your jobs. And in the coming years, the rise of automation will provide us with an invitation to reconceive our relationship to work. Will we allow the profits from automation to flow almost exclusively to the, an elite few? Or, we, or will we choose to explore as a society how we might expand access to the good life? Whether or not we can reach that 19th century dream of the two-hour workday, can we begin to recapture a movement of decreasing work hours for those who are alienated from their job, who do not enjoy their work? Remember that the focus here is not on the 30% of human beings today who would actually feel constrained and unfulfilled. If you told me that I could only do this job for 10 hours a week, that would actually make me less happy. Like, that's not what we want. What we want to do is help the 60% of people who hate their job. It's important to keep in mind that the 40-hour work week wasn't inevitable. It was a massive change, and it was something achieved by hard work, by the solidarity and working in coalition of the labor movement. Remember again that most people historically used to work 12 or more hours a day for six or seven days a week. So something like 80 hours a week. So going from 80 hours a week, we achieved in the late 19th century the 40-hour work week. Our idea of what should count as a standard work week has changed before. It can change again. There's a really interesting one-line phrase from Marx that I sometimes think about. He said that the shortening of the working day is freedom's basic prerequisite. The shortening of the working day is freedom's basic prerequisite. If you really care about freedom, you've got to give people free time. It's really worth thinking about. What might open up? What 
might emerge if human beings had more free time to explore what really gave them joy, what really let them flourish as a person. And let's be honest that having 60% of people underpaid for jobs they hate, you know, speaking of Marx, that has a lot of revolutionary potential in it. If you really do have 60% of people doing jobs they hate, there's a lot of revolutionary potential in that. To cite just one manifestation of this dynamic at the moment, this Labor Day weekend, right now at this moment in our country, finds us with 10 million job openings and more than 8.4 million people unemployed that are actively looking for work. What's up with that di discrepancy? 10 million job openings and 8.4 million people looking for work. The discrepancy is a big mismatch between the jobs available and what workers want to do. And basically people are saying, I'd rather do nothing and scrape by than do a terrible job for 40 hours a week that I absolutely hate, that's degrading and demoralizing. Years ago, Janis Joplin said it this way, freedom's just another word for nothing left to lose. There's a lot of revolutionary potential in that. That being said, I wish I could stand here and guarantee for you that people having more free time would necessarily lead to the utopian future I would love to be a part of, where people use their free time for making beautiful things like our new art exhibit, reading beautiful things, or simply contemplating the world with admiration and delight. If we want to increase the likelihood of, future, of such a future, we do need to drastically increase our funding for the arts and for the humanities, if that's something we want to see people do in their free time. But I'm also willing to concede that more free time will also lead to more people playing video games all day. <laughs> that, that's a reality of the situation, especially with the rise of virtual reality. And those of us who have a hangover from the Christian work ethic of the Middle Ages might accordingly be worried that idle hands are the devil's workshop. But I invite you to consider that it might be worth the possibility of exploring together what such a future might open up that we can't yet see compared to the alternative of 60 plus percent of people being poorly paid to do work they hate. As to how we reach such a better future, I've spoken previously about ways we can revitalize the labor movement in this country, such as passing the PRO Act, which stands for Protecting the Right to Organize. It would strengthen various protections for workers seeking to support unionization and increase penalties for employers who retaliate against unionizers. The PRO Act has passed the U.S. House of Representatives, but it's currently one of many pending pieces of progressive legislation, unlikely to pass the Senate unless there is filibuster reform. If you're interested in joining a network of Unitarian Universalists working to create change along these lines in our country, there's a link right in the center of our homepage to the Side with Love Action Center launch next Sunday, September 12th at 2 o'clock p.m. And if you, that will be recorded, so you can also click on that link and sign up to receive the recording afterwards. It's the, this is the next step after the quite successful UU the Vote campaign. So it's the Side with Love Action Center. Overall, my hope on this Labor Day weekend has been to give us some frameworks for reflection, to, that understanding how much things have changed in the past can empower us to imagine how our current relationship with work can also change for the future, so that an increasing number of us might have less alienated labor and more free time for life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness.
In a few moments, we'll be invited to hear Solidarity Forever, which is perhaps the labor movement's most famous anthem. The original lyrics were written in 1915 and set to the tune of John Brown's body. That's a marching song written decades earlier by Union soldiers during the Civil War about the radical abolitionist who worked for freedom from enslavement, John Brown. Some of you may recall of the Secret Six who helped fund and supply John Brown's 1859 raid on the Harper's Ferry, on the armory, the Federal Armory at Harper's Ferry just up the road from here. Of the Secret Six, five were Unitarians and two were Unitarian ministers. Among those five Unitarians was Samuel Howe, the husband of another Unitarian ancestor, Julia Ward Howe, who awoke in the middle of the night after visiting Civil War camps and hospitals and was inspired to write new lyrics to the tune of John Brown's body, verses that became the Battle Hymn of the Republic. When the Civil War began, it was far from clear in the North that the fight, was this fight only to preserve the Union or was it also to end slavery? Julia's Battle Hymn of the Republic was written in November 1861, more than a year before Lincoln's Emancipation Proclamation and on January 1st, 1863, and Julia's lyrics helped catalyze popular support for using the Civil War as an opportunity to end slavery once and for all, even though now we have the new Jim Crow, and that's part of what that Side with Love Action Center will be working on. As we prepare to hear the first and last verses of this labor anthem, I invite you to remember that it is both about solidarity forever and the labor movement, but this song has deep echoes to John Brown's body and the movement to end slavery in the 19th century, as well as the Battle Hymn of the Republic. As we listen, may we open the imaginations of our mind and the compassion of our hearts to what can become possible when we do join together in coalition across our differences, that when we join together in solidarity across ever-widening circles of inclusion. Let's hear it, solidarity forever. Oh, oh, oh. 